Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. Good morning. It's Wednesday, November 6, 2019, and you're listening to the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. Today, in our second part, we will be speaking with Rhonda Gruenwald about parish vocation ministry in her book, Hundredfold, A Guide to Parish Vocational Ministry. But first, as always, I want to welcome everybody who's listening to us here in the Brazos Valley on KEDC 88.5 FM, her and Bryan College Station, and out in Central Texas on KYAR 98.3 FM, Lorena Waco, and also our listeners in Palestine on KINF 107.9 FM. We are broadcasting live at the moment, and so if there's something that you would like to share about what's going on in your parish that you want everybody to know about, Feel free to give us a call at 85-LOVE-RED-SEA. That's 855-683-7332. I also want to say hello to Dr. Thaddeus Romanski, our general manager, station director, and all around know everything about the radio station. <laughs> Boy, Deacon Mike, I thought you were going to say all around know it all, and I just, just wasn't going to know what to do with that. Uh, <laughs> good morning. How are you? <laughs> good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. This is um, this is the day before the benefit dinner. Uh, we're making all of our last-minute preparations, and I hope that all of you are getting excited to join us tomorrow night. Thursday, November 7th at 6.30 at St. Thomas Aquinas in College Station to support KEDC and the Red Sea Apostolate. Father Albert Haas is going to be our keynote speaker. He's going to speak to us on qualities of contemporary holiness. And he is wonderful. Yes, he is. And he's also going to be saying Mass for our Immaculata Society members at 5.30 p.m., at St. Thomas Aquinas in the main church before the benefit dinner. Then we're going to have our brief uh, VIP, and then doors open at 6.30 for everyone. So please make sure that you come along. We don't have any individual tickets left, Deacon Mike, but we do— Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. But we do have about 15 spots scattered across some of the purchase tables where we could maybe fit somebody in if they really want to— be there and they didn't have an opportunity to to purchase a ticket call the studio or email dennis dennis at redcradio.org or caitlin at redcradio.org or thaddeus at redcradio.org in that order of um of importance no just kidding email any of us and we will get you taken care of i would have thought you'd list caitlin first that but just uh, I like to give Dennis trouble, you know. <laughs> so do I, but I was talking to Dennis when I first came in, and he was panicked because he's not panicked. Mm. And because uh, apparently, you know, 
everything is going extremely well, getting ready for the benefit dinner. And uh, Well, that's because our wonderful administrative coordinator, Caitlin Brightwell, if you're listening, she is doing such a great job with handling so many of the of the tasks that usually used to fall all on Dennis's shoulder. Then for a couple of years, you know, I took some of those off of his shoulders. Um, she is just helping us so, so much, and we, we thank her so much. Um and we were, we're really excited because she is part of the uh, the Brightwell clan now, and the Fast Signs has purchased a table at our benefit dinner, and we're we're really excited about having them there for the benefit dinner, and that's a credit to Caitlin as well. So that's really neat. I think it's important to remember why we have a benefit dinner to begin with, because the radio station is basically funded by the people who listen to it. Right. That's right. And so once a year, we have a benefit dinner mm-hmm. for people to show how important the radio station is to them. This is their radio station. Yes. And so um, we want to thank everybody that's already bought a table, bought a ticket, and uh, we want to thank you. And uh, as Thaddeus said, if you would like to come and you haven't purchased a ticket, mm-hmm. there's a few spots scattered around some of the tables. Mm-hmm. Um, email Dennis or Caitlin or Thaddeus, and uh, they can get you hooked up with something. That's right. That's right. We would be happy to. And if you um, if you have are in a, in a place where um, the purchase of a ticket is just beyond your abilities right now, but you really want to be there to support us, to hear um, Father Albert, you love the, the community around the radio station, email us. Let us know and we'll and we'll get you we'll get you in. Yes, because we want our listeners to be able to attend the benefit dinner. Yeah, yeah we want our listeners there. Um one of the things I don't know if you have particularly noticed them, but we're starting to run a segment on the radio called Know the Truth. I have. You have. Wonderful, because the ones I've heard were narrated by you. (laughs) Uh, But I wanted to talk a little bit about why we're doing this. And um, there's so much confusion out there right now. You hear things about the Catholic Church is changing this, the Catholic Church is changing that. There's a synod that's going to change everything, and people get unwarrantedly excited about some of these things. And so we thought we would run a series of spots to remind everyone of what the church teaches, which hasn't changed in years. And so we wanted to reemphasize that there are things that the church teaches about being the church. There are things that the church teaches about the Eucharist. There are things that the church teaches about the priesthood mm-hmm. and celibacy that have not changed. Other religions. Other religions, our relationship with other uh, denominations mm-hmm. and all these things. And um, so we have a catechism. The catechism states everything that the church teaches and other than the modification to one passage on the death penalty Nothing has changed in the catechism since it was written. Mm -hmm. And so we can be reassured that 
what the church teaches is what the church teaches. That's right. These are sort of uh, the catechism in miniature, little bite-sized chunks of the catechism that we hope will... We want to we wanna tell people what the church teaches, and we are, we're also trying to sort of give you some little... Um, little things to hang hang on to uh to sort of file away in your mind about oh that's uh that's why this this teaching is what it is and that you can use if you get questions about that so we hope by re- repetition and hearing these often they will um sink in and become a part of the way that you understand and articulate your faith to your spouse to your children to other wider family, co-workers, et cetera. And again, this directly connects to what Red Sea stands for. Religious. Education. For the domestic domestic church. church. And so we provide you the tools that you need to provide that education to others because we will provide you with what it is that the church teaches. Indeed. A uh, quick reminder that if you have something that you want to talk about that's going on in your parish that people should know about, feel free to give us a call at 85-LOVE-RED-SEA. That's 855-683-7332. And if I could just add one other thing to this little conversation about the Know the Truth Spots, this is the kind of the beginning of um, a sense on our part that we want to step more into helping helping educate you and doing our part sort of locally, um, especially in between the great programming that we get from EWTN and, and Relevant Radio, but to do more to um, build you up in your faith and, and to help you understand and equip you to answer the questions that you get or are going to get from your children or you're going to have to, you know, you're going to face from... Uh, family members, et cetera. We, we want to do more for you. And that takes uh, time and that takes resources and, and study. Um, but this is the beginning of, of that effort. And we're going to, we're, we're hoping in the next year, two, three years to be putting more of this kind of content on the air for you, not, not to replace the really valuable um, announcements of parish events, because that's, that's really important and a unique service that the radio station provides. But we also see this this opening to do more um, teaching. And also it's a way to reassure all of us that the church in the last 2,000 years has taught the same things the church will continue to teach in the next 2,000 years. That's right, because we communicate the teachings of Jesus Christ. We are proclaiming his gospel. One other thing I wanted to talk about before we run out of time on our first segment is we're doing the saint of the day or saint of the week. And um, you got a good one today. I have a good one today, which goes right into what we've just been talking about. On Monday, we celebrated the feast of St. Charles Borromeo. And this is not the first period of excitement and upheaval in the Catholic Church. Really? Yes, I understand that this is shocking. But um, throughout the last 2,000 years, for some reasons, since Jesus established a church 
that is administered by human beings, there have been missteps, there have been problems, and there have been crises. One of those big crises was the Reformation in the 1500s. You don't say. I don't say. St. Charles Borromeo was the nephew of Pope Pius IV. And St. Charles did not want to be a priest at first, but his uncle made him a lay administrator Mm -hmm. in the Vatican because he was so capable. And he was only 24 years old when this happened. And St. Charles died at age 46, so he died young. Mm. So his accomplishments are absolutely impressive. Maybe that means I don't have to worry about dying at age 46 because I'm not nearly as holy as (laughs) St. Charles Borromeo was. Uh, I'm always reminded of uh, the uh, psalm reading that God's mercy, uh, God's patience is aimed towards mercy. Mm. So if we live long, it's because God's patient with us and has still high hopes that we will amend our ways. But back to St. Charles Borromeo. Um, He became a um, bishop over time, he was also the uh, Secretary of State for his uncle, Pope Pius IV. And as a bishop, he visited over a thousand parishes. That's no small feat at that time. Yes, uh, considering that uh, Bishop Joe has 125. Um, so. He visited a thousand parishes. He was instrumental in establishing the first catechism out of the Council of Trent. And one of his big jobs is to counteract all the errors brought on by the Reformation. And he spent his entire rest of his life teaching not just the seminarians, which was his main task, but also the lay people. And so uh, he is the um, patron saint of bishops, cardinals, seminarians, catechists, and catechumens. The Lord raises up saints when we need them. And so when we have these periods of crisis, be reassured that God is going to find the saint that we need at the time to give us light and to give us hope and to give us guidance. St. Charles Borromeo was that for the Reformation, and so we will have that in our time also. We will be back after our break to talk to uh, Rhonda Gruenwald, and I'll see you back on the other side. And we are back. Welcome back to the Red Sea Roundup. And as promised, we're going to be talking to Rhonda Gruenwald about parish vocation ministry. Good morning, Rhonda. How are you this morning? 
I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it is my pleasure, especially since we are focusing on vocations right now. So this is an opportune time to be talking to you. Good morning, Rhonda. And if you weren't on the air with us in the first segment, but we were talking about St. Charles Borromeo, a guy who was trying to avoid a vocation himself. <laughs> yeah. Well, then he, and then he ended up reforming all the seminaries. Right. And that's why he's the patron saint of seminarians. <laughs> yes. 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 We try to do a little bit about... Um, the saint of the day or saint of the week, and uh, he seemed to fit in absolutely perfect since his yes. feast day was on yes. Monday. So we awesome. talked a little bit about that leading into this. So uh, before we get into um, the details of this, what made you decide to focus on vocations as a ministry? Well, none of this was my idea or my plan. I'm a convert to the faith. I came into the church in 1999. Um, I, I didn't grow up with much faith at all. My dad didn't want the Bible read in the house, so it wasn't. My mom was Methodist. We went to church a handful of times. I had no connection to God or Jesus. I end up at the University of Texas in Austin, and then uh, I am teaching English and coaching speech and debate at Klein Oak High School north of Houston. Um, and at that time of life, when I'm 25, I go back to church, at the Methodist church, and I'm baptized finally. And a year later, I met my husband now of 22 years, who was just Catholic enough to say, I can't get married over there. So we get married in the church and find a parish home in North Houston. And then I uh, go through RCIA. Now I'm pregnant with our daughter, Abby. But instead of coming into the church at the Easter Vigil, I get birth that night. So there are going to be bonus points later for me in that realm. <laughs> so I uh, come into the church in 1999. 2011, it comes, and Father Victor Perez, a brand-new priest at that time, calls me out of the blue and says, can you and your husband come to a meeting about priests and such in three hours up a church? And I'm like, well, I love our priests, so sure. So I go, and he's talking about resurrecting the parish vocation committee. I had no idea what the word vocation meant in the Catholic context in 2011. But he, Father Victor was like, this is one of the most important things we can do at our parish is to promote priesthood, religious life, and marriage. So I said, okay, well, if it is one of the most important things we can do, I'm on board. I go home, I'm Googling what is a vocation, <laughs> uh, and I'm thinking for sure there's going to be something to tell me how to do this work, but there was nothing comprehensive, just activities. So we just let the Holy Spirit guide us. We started praying and promoting vocations any way we could at our parish. And about 18 months into that, the Archdiocese said, how can we do that all over Houston? And I said, maybe I could write a pamphlet, a little trifle. That's all it was going to be. But the Holy Spirit had bigger plans, and it became a book 17 months later. Um, in June of 15, it came out. Then vocation directors, every diocese has a vocation director, priest, they all get together in the fall every year. So I go to the vocation directors conference and they started asking me, can you come train our priests? Can you come train our parishioners? And I was like, that wasn't my plan. I just wrote a book. And since that time in four years, I've given 75 workshops in 45 dioceses in North America. So that's how it all came to be. And, uh, Reminds me of how, you know, the things that we plan for ourselves are so often nothing like what God has planned for us. Yeah, and I could never have even imagined 
me, the convert, didn't grow up with any faith, had nothing coming into the church, really, um, to now giving 24 priest convocations. That means I spend two and three days speaking with priests about how to promote vocations at their parishes. It's unbelievable to me what God had in store for me that I didn't even know. And he was preparing me early. I wasn't even Catholic, and he had me. I was a speech major, so I could, I could be in front of people all the time and speak. I was an English major, so I could write a book. Um, I mean, I, I just, God is amazing. So that's why I tell the story, because anybody who says yes, God can work with that yes. And that's whether they're discerning a vocation or just whatever God is calling to, for them to do to build up the church. We just were talking about this in one of our Bible study meetings, the fact that there's a lot of times that God uses our weaknesses or the things that we think we're not equipped to do and makes that the focus. Sure. Uh, and, yeah. you know, in your case, know. you weren't even, yeah. you know, you had no Catholic. knowledge of vocations. <laughs> you didn't know what it meant. And yet that <laughs> is the focus of your ministry. And I always tease right. people that, you know, I used to be deathly terrified of public speaking to oh. the point where, you know, I'm by nature an introvert. I would shy away from, you know, standing up and saying hi to a crowd. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now I do this all the time and I'm on the radio. So God has a delicious sense of humor at times. Absolutely. Uh, I had a question in your opinion, what is the state of vocations in the church today, especially here in the United States? So we have 177 dioceses. 33 dioceses did not ordain a new priest this past summer. We've got 3,500 parishes without a resident priest. Um, we have 14 healthy vocations. Uh, healthy dioceses for vocations. So what does that mean? So 14 of the 177 have enough active priests to take care of their parishes and or and are ordaining enough new priests each year to take care of retirees. So that means healthy. And there are only 14 of them. We have 16 in a vocation drought. That means they have less than half the number of priests that they do parishes, meaning they have 80 parishes and 30 priests to take care of them. I mean, it's it, – and then, then they're not ordaining anybody. That's a, Those are in vocation drought. And the rest of them, like the 137 that are left, they're just in maintenance mode. They may have enough priests to take care of their parishes right now, but they're not ordaining nearly as many as they should be. And the problem is, is in 2025, that is the year when a, a – big swath of priests in the United States will be retiring just by, because that's when the boom was happening back mm -hmm. in the day. And so now they're getting to retirement age. So 2025 in the North and Northeast, especially are going to see a 50% drop in the number of priests they have just due to retirement. So as I keep saying, we, we really should have been doing, I mean, I know God's timing is perfect and he's got me doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm just saying, I, I wish I would have been around 30 years ago and started all of this, you know, because I really feel like that's when we probably should have started all this, but I'm not going to dwell on that. Here we are now. And 
I just want to make sure everybody knows that there's something they can do. They hear these numbers. They hear crisis. They mm-hmm. hear negative, negative, negative about vocations. But what is important to know is that the 70% of the newly ordained say they first heard the call to priesthood between birth and 18 years of age when they were in, involved at the parish level. And so that's why we need to nurture those that call when it happens. And, you know, in the Archdiocese of Galveston, Houston, we did a survey of our seminarians and found that 80% of them came from the 20% of parishes that actually promote vocations. So we know if we're intentional at our parishes about praying for vocations and promoting them, that God cannot be outdone in generosity and will provide. So true. One thing I wanted to comment on, you were saying that we should have done something about this much earlier, but I am a firm believer that there's never been a lack of call to do these sort of oh, things. Sure. There's been a lack yes. of yeses. Yes, exactly. And, no, it's true. That's why I'm saying that if we were more intentional at the parish level, you know, 25 years ago, I think we got, we got to a place where we were like, had so many priests for so long. I mean, back in the day, there'd be a priest ordained in Boston, and he may never in his lifetime become a pastor because we had so many priests. He would always be a parochial vicar somewhere. And they looked at being a pa- as a pastor as something, you know, almost unattainable. And if you think about now, we've got pastors of three and four parishes, one pastor for three and four parishes. So um, it's just weird. we were in a glut. We had so many priests for a long period of time. And now we're really feeling, we're starting to feel the pinch in a big way. Do you think in part that exacerbated exacerbated the problem a little bit because there was a feel that we didn't have to advertise for vocations as much and so sure. that stopped being part of the normal for the church yeah you know and i don't even know if we really ever advertised i just think back in the day there was an every family almost had an uncle who was a priest or an aunt who was a sister yeah. um we had um a, when we because we had so many priests priests were coming over for dinner all the time they were more of part of family life in a more regular way uh, we also had more um families going to mass on a regular basis that was just normal. Nobody would have thought about not attending Mass on a Sunday, and now we call those people, like, really Catholic. You know, like, we say, oh, they're really Catholic. They go to Mass on Sundays. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes. and, and so, we, you know, there are a lot of factors going on about why we're in the position we're in now. Um, I just know that um, there's something to be done about it, and if people are ready to get involved, we have an answer to it. <laughs> so that's a good thing. Yes. So when you talk to someone at a parish, be it the pastor or a parochial vicar or someone, how do you explain how important it is to start this at the parish level? Well, I, I, I give them the stats of the, you know, when the newly ordained are hearing the call, because it's almost the same for religious life, for sisters. They're, they're hearing the call when they're active in parish life as well. Um, and so, and also for priests, you know, if I speak at a priest's convocation, I have all the priests stand up 
at the different categories, like zero to five years old. Did you hear the call between zero and five years of age? And there'll be pre-stand up. Mm-hmm. And then six to twelve, there'll be more pre-stand up. The big, it's big between six and eighteen is the 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 like fifty percent here at, between that time of life. So when they look around and they go, oh my gosh, that's when we heard it. And I say, priests, didn't were how many of you were inspired to be a priest by another priest? And they almost all raised their hand. And I say, well, isn't it time that you're that priest for somebody else? You know, we, we need to be inviting mm-hmm. young men and women to discern priesthood and religious life. So, um, but I, I don't want anybody thinking that we have to leave this solely to the priest, because the priests can do what they can do, which is talk about vocations. They can give their testimony. They can share their joy. They can invite. But they're not supposed to be running a vocation ministry. They're just the spiritual guide of this ministry. Um, they, we need lay people who are ready to get their hands dirty for vocations to start a new wave of vocations in their, par- their parish and diocese, really. Which brings me to my next question, uh, because your book, Hundredfold, A Guide to Parish Vocation Ministry, is written aimed at the laity. This is what you can do yes. to help out at your parish. Yes. How do you get lay people excited about doing this? Well, when you share the, the need with them, uh, like I've laid out for you already, and, um, you know, most places I've gone, for example, Grand Island, Nebraska, okay, that's, it's not grand, and it's not an island, but it is a diocese that's eight hours across with more cows than people. I gave my very first workshops in Grand Island, Nebraska to um, 60 people total, and they have about 40,000 Catholics. Um, when I went there in 2015, they had one seminarian, one lone seminarian for the whole diocese. So I taught them what they were supposed to do and when they're supposed to do it using hundredfold and sharing with them how they start with prayer. They need to get a foundation of prayer going in their parish, everybody praying for vocations. And then they start doing um, awareness and education for their parishioners because I think that many parishioners have no idea that marriage is a vocation, how a sister becomes a sister or a priest a priest, and there's so much educating that needs to be done. We need to get in front of our youth and put this as an, a joyful alternative for them and then uh, affirm those who've already said yes. So those are the types of activities, the four types of activities. So um, train them up, send them out to their parishes. I went back this year in April, so four years later, three and a half years later, they now have nine seminarians. And some of the people who were at the first workshop came to the second workshop and said, I was here, this is what we did at our parish, and we now have a seminarian. This is in, and, and they went down the line and did that. So we know that it can, uh, it works, and what a big difference it can make for the health of the diocese for vocations. And I think that this is, a, you bring up something that people really don't think about, but the fact that all it takes is one vocation in each parish to replace the parish priest. Right. You know, in, in Galveston, Houston, we have about 150 parishes. If we had each parish gave a new seminarian, a new young man inter-seminary, once every three years, we would have 50 new seminarians 
every year. Think about that. We would have, we would be ordaining 18 to 20 new priests a year if that were the case. And it is, realistically, that's what we're going to uh, are going to need. Agreed, because we have so many priests that are retiring. So um, it is it is true. We we need more, and um, I think there are plenty of people out there who want to do something, but they just didn't even know there was anything they could do. That they they're happy to get involved and do something for for this. But but they they think oh my gosh I'm going to have to recreate the wheel and which is what I had to do from scratch pretty much put it all together and figure it all out but now that's not the case I say you don't even have to recreate the wheel you just get in the car and figure out how fast you can drive it in your parish because between the the book hundredfold and the website vocationministry.com, that's where they go to get all the tools and download and put their parish name on it and just implement. It's so easy compared to when I was doing it. And we thank you for laying the groundwork so that other parishes can pick up on this and implement all these wonderful uh, steps that you've put together in your book. Well, thank you. I'm just so happy that anybody is using it. You know, I think we've sold something like twelve to 15,000 books in the last four years. So um, if, if, if we get one new priest out of it, that's all that matters. That's, uh, that's the sole reason. I mean, if we don't have our priests, we do not have Eucharist. That's my mission. Um, I, I, I'm also advocating, obviously, for consecrated life and marriage, too, um, and because all, all vocations flow through marriage. All the vocations come from marriages. So we need to uplift marriage. But um, I'm keeping my sights on the fact that if, if we don't have priests, we don't have Eucharist. And there are plenty of places. Okay, so in Houston and where, where you're broadcasting, for the most part, people are used to having their same priest who shows up every Sunday. You know, they don't think another thing of it. But there are plenty of places in the United States that don't – they have basically a rotating priests. They don't see them as often as they need to. They have communion services because their priests can't get there. They may be, you know, three hours from their priest. I mean, it's, it's real. It is happening. Yes, I uh, make it a point every time I do a communion service, I – started by saying make sure that we pray for vocations so that we have always ample priests to consecrate the Eucharist because I can't do a communion service if there hasn't been a priest to consecrate the Eucharist. Exactly. Hopefully that, you know, we have enough priests that when a priest needs to go somewhere for one reason or another, you don't have to have a communion service. You have another priest that says Mass. Right. Exactly. Now, one of the things you mentioned in your book is that parishes should recognize marriages. How do you draw the connection between the need for vocations and the need to honor marriages? So a couple of things. You know, we, we know that uh, 86% of the newly ordained, so they came from intact families that keep the sacraments close. And a family, at the heart of a family is marriage. You know, John Paul II said the family is a seedbed of vocations. So we must 
uplift those who are married already in our parishes. Um, and that can be done in very simple ways of like world, uh, world Marriage Day, which is in February, and have all the married couples stand up and receive a blessing. Um, it's super, it doesn't have to take, you know, all, all the things to do that. You could have a, a reception after masses on that day and have a wedding cake served. How fun is that? You know, simple things. But I, I think at the deeper issue to me is there not enough programs to support those are, who are currently married. For example, I spoke to the priests of Chicago. There were like 500 priests in a room. And I asked them, how many of priests have a program specifically designed to support those who are married in their parishes? Four priests raised their hand. Four. And I said, do you need continuing education as a priest? Oh, yes. I get it once or twice a year. I said, do you know how often I get continuing education as a married woman? I said, I, not often unless my parish decides to put together something or I bring a book home on how to implement some new technique or theory about what I can do in my own marriage. I can t promise you my husband loves it when I bring those books home. <laughs> but um, I'm just saying that we, I feel like we pre-see our, our parishioners when they get married. They prepare them for the marriage. And then there's not a lot of walking with them except through the sacraments until maybe they see plenty of them at the annulment process. You know, I just feel like we wouldn't need to be at the annulment process or have as many marriages getting divorced if there was more support for those marriages and help them to strive for holiness in their marriage because it's only through that that we are going to have families striving for holiness and more vocations. Actually, this is a point Pope Francis made. He said that what's needed in the Catholic Church is a catechumenate for marriage where you sure. have— a preparation program, and then a mystagogy at the end of it, where after the marriage you continue the program because what we basically do is we get them married and we say, job done. Yes. And we provide right. no support of how do you live out that married life then. Because in exactly. you know, RCIA, we, there is a mystagogy that you know, we say, okay, now you're a Catholic. What do you do with this? We mm -hmm. don't do that for married couples. Right. So it's really important to, um, that's why I, there's actually a second edition of Hundredfold. I wrote the first one in 2015, and the second edition came out in 2017, because I kept hearing from people all around the country saying, but what about marriage? What about marriage? What about marriage? So I added 10 new activities. That are, that's it, the only edition pretty much in circulation is the second edition now. But um, that's the one that has 10 activities on marriage specifically. So it's really important. A quick reminder, everyone, you're listening to the Red Sea Roundup. My guest is Rhonda Gruenwald, and uh, we are live. So if you have a comment about what we're talking about, feel free to give us a call at 85-LOVE-RED-SEA. That's 855-683-7332. Now, you were talking about activities, Rhonda. Uh, with the book came a vocation ministry activities chart. Right. So How that chart is just keeping everything really organized. All the 67 activities 
or easily accessible to people. So it has a chart at the opening right underneath the uh, cover. And when you open that up, it's divided into phases because I tell people I'm really a, a different kind of speaker. When when normally you have some new program, they're like, do it all, do everything, do everything you can. It's good, you know, you need to be all in. And and I and I look at it as we. This is a marathon, not a sprint. We need this new vocation ministry or committee or whatever you're going to call yourselves to last a long time. So I give advice on how to implement the activities in phases, so that. A, the parish is, has a strong foundation to build upon, and a new ministry isn't bo- just completely worn out within six months because they've done all the things. So um, I've tried to do it in a prayerful, organized fashion, which is why that chart is really helpful to have. Like how, many, how much funds do you need to do this? And most of the things at the beginning, you don't need any funds to do them. Um, how long does it take you to start this? What's the lead time you need? Uh, at the beginning, maybe two weeks, you know. Um, the activities in phase three and four are going to be more complicated. You need more volunteers and more resources. But at the beginning, it's everything's very simple to implement. And that's, that's part of the beauty of it is that in phase one, you could do it with just one or two people. So as long as your priest says yes, one person can start doing this and then add more people to the ministry as it goes on. Uh, some of the suggestions in the book are projects like sending cards to seminarians, having a sub, uh, reception at your parish for your priest on special occasions, um, sending cards and gifts for priests. And how do you see those sort of activities fostering vocations? So first of all, I think that affirmation is a part of our vocation work that has not been done as much as it should have been done. Our priests need to feel loved. Sisters need to feel loved. Married couples need to feel loved um, and appreciated. And uh, But for our priests, you know, I feel like on a weekend, week out on Sundays, they're, they're hearing a lot of complaints. They're hearing a lot about, oh, Father, the toilet's not working in the in the bathroom. Oh, Father, we need a new roof. Oh, Father, that homily was way too long, you know. Um, and imagine if all you heard from your spouse or your children was negative. How would you feel? So we, as the body of Christ, are we should be building up our priests. And say if your priest is not joyful, my first question is, are you praying for him on a regular basis? And are you uplifting him? Are you affirming him in the small things he does that makes the church run? Um, he wakes up every day and says yes. How about that? He said yes, you know, 20 years ago or whenever his ordination was. But he said yes every day to serving the people of the parish and to bring souls to Christ. So let's focus on that and say thank you a lot to our priests in a, in a variety of different ways. And whether that is – and definitely in front of your children, so important for your children to hear you say thank you and uplift your priest. Also, seminarians, I mean, we, we semin, those in seminary know how much they are under attack because the devil does not want them to finish. So we need prayers and affirmation for those who are in formation right now. The same goes with if you have a convent in your diocese. 
send some, get some kids together and draw cards, make cards for the sisters who are at the convent, or send a care package with some cards in it. This is actually a wonderful project for like uh, religious education programs. Have oh, the younger yeah. kids make out cards yeah. either for a convent or send them to the seminarians, but encourage them to recognize those vocations. Absolutely. I heard of one diocese has a pen pal program in action with their religious ed and uh, seminarians. So each seminarian has a pen pal that they um, go back and forth between. I just think that's a great way to build up a relationship and to bring somebody else to holiness, too. I mean, the seminarian would be a great influence on on a young man. Uh Prayer is a big part of the efforts described in your book. How important is it for there to be a concerted effort by the entire parish to pray for vocations? Well, that has to be a fundamental aspect of this work, because you can do all of the awareness activities and youth and affirmation you want, but unless your parish is praying, it will not be fruitful. So that has to be the beginning efforts, and that can be simply as uh, at the beginning of ta- saying, making sure that there are prayers and the prayers of the faithful for vocations. Maybe there's a prayer for vocation said after Mass or sometimes around Mass. Um, putting prayer cards out, asking people to pray for vocations, especially like on big days like World Day of Prayer for Vocations, which is always a Good Shepherd Sunday, the fourth Sunday in Easter. So um, we put things in the bulletin you know, uh, put uh, prayer cards in the church book rack. So all of these things make an overall difference in the health of a parish for vocations. So um, it, adoration, if a parish doesn't have 24-7 adoration, just having a holy hour once a week or starting at once a month maybe and then going to once a week and then being perpetual, because we know that uh, 80% of the newly ordained regularly adored before the Blessed Sacrament. So that means that it was a regular part of their everyday life or every week life or whatever that looks like. So, but if, they're, if it's not offered anywhere nearby, then you know, it's harder for God to break through the noisiness of our world. Some part of the vocation ministry's efforts are to make opportunities for silence and to bring families, like a family holy hour, bring kids and parents in so that God can speak with them, and they can hear it. Again, we're talking to Rhonda Gruenwald, and uh, you're listening to the Red Sea Roundup. If there's a comment or something you want to share with us, feel free to give us a call at 85-LOVE-RED-SEA. That's 855-683-7332. Rhonda, one of the projects in your book is called the Melchizedek Project. What does that look like? So that's a discernment group that can be run at a parish if you have uh, five or six young men who are interested in possible priesthood. Um, They use the book To Save a Thousand Souls that was written by Father Brett Brannan, um, and they walk through that book, and it's free. They just sign up at at that website that's given in the book. Um, They will receive all the resources they need to run a discernment group 
in at their parish or in the diocese. So it's very helpful. So any priest, it's really helpful if a priest runs the discernment group, but it can be done by a youth minister. It can, you know, it can be done by somebody else, but it's really helpful if a priest does it and leads young people to really intentionally discern whether or not this is the life that they're being called to for high schoolers or young adults. One thing I was wondering, especially like here in Bryan College Station, we have five parishes in a fairly close area. Would it work to have these projects run individually in the parishes but have meetings for the young people as a community? Yes. Yes. The answer is a very definite yes, <laughs> because we we know that it's it would be much more fruitful to have uh, discernment groups or even uh, dinners for young men who may be interested in the priesthood with maybe some priests from those parishes um, more frequently than waiting for something to be done, and especially because the Diocese of Austin is so large, is, you know, everybody has to, what, drive into Austin to to go to a dinner to find out more? You know, that doesn't make any sense. So I absolutely agree with you. It, it, parish groupings are a great place for that, too. And it's less likely you're going to get pushback from parents. If parents think you're going to having to go to dinner with the bishop, to find out more about the priesthood, that's, that's, those are red flags in a parent's head going, oh, my gosh, he's signing up for the priesthood, you know, already as a 14-year-old. But that's not the case. But that's what they're thinking. But if you're just going next door to the parish next door and you've known Father Bob all your life, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's a lot easier to go, oh, okay, go find out more, sure. You know, way easier for parents because 50% of the newly ordained say that, that parents were discouraging in their vocation journey. So we need to reach to parents and grandparents in this process, too. Which goes right back to what one of the things you were talking about with the cards and thank yous for the priests. I would imagine it's as important to have the parents see the priesthood in a positive light as much as it is the young men perhaps discerning a vocation. Yes. And so that's why I tell people, don't, for, don't just solely focus on the youth. You've got to put joyful witnesses in front of the adults in your parish. And that can um, happen at, you know, when you have maybe Mission Sunday, you see joyful witnesses. Maybe um, invite at a, a youth ministry could invite the parents and have a sister speak to all of them. You know, and it could be, it does, the thing is, is a sister and a priest, they don't have to talk about vocation specifically. A, a sister can just be there in habit and, and be a witness, and they could be talking about maybe the importance of Eucharist. Whatever it is, she is such an important witness just by her being there, she will inspire young people to think about a call to the religious life. It's amazing how that happens. So I say make sure you're putting joyful witnesses in front of everybody at the parish. It's so important. I uh, am reminded of uh, the beginning uh, montage in the Catholicism series. There's always an image of a nun from the Sisters of Charities, mm. and she is just radiating joy and dancing. Yes. 
And, you know, when you were talking about this, you know, that came to mind that we do need to see the joy that vocations bring to people's lives. Right. And how can a young girl in Fargo think of a vocation as a consecrated sister if she's never seen one? She's never seen one in person. I mean, so I say, okay, if you can't get one in person, Skype, let's use technology. Let's show them videos. There are plenty of videos out there that would be great for this. Um, so, uh, n but nothing can really take the place of a personal encounter uh, with sisters and, uh, and joyful priests to, um, to make a difference for young people, to, to see themselves in that. You know, we had some, one of the activities is a reunion mass and reception. We invited everybody that had ever said yes from St. Cecilia uh, to come back and speak to the kids at the parish school mass. So um, we had, I don't know, eight who could come. One of them was Bishop Cahill. He's a bishop now of Victoria um, and Bishop Mulvey of Corpus Christi. Those, they both graduated from St. Cecilia Catholic School. And uh, Bishop Cahill stood at a gate, his uh, part of the homily, said, I walked those halls, I sat in these pews, and no one ever thought I would be a priest. And here I am, and I love my life. Um, and I, I just think that's just so powerful because the kids can really relate to that. You know, they, they're probably going, that's not me. Because normally when you invite a young man, have you ever thought about being a priest? You have really good qualities. Like you have, you're a good leader. People like to follow you. You're, you're joyful. You're prayerful. Uh, that's a good way to invite, first of all. Don't say you look good in black and white. <laughs> okay, so, so talk about their qualities. That's how it's a good start, starting point for invitation, right? So that's where that can, that can start. And six, uh, six is the average number of times the newly ordained say they were asked they were asked if they'd ever thought about being a priest before they entered seminary six times so you don't know whether you're number 1 or number 6 so you should definitely encourage and invite um those who might have a call to think about it further because you don't know where you're going to be in that one or six and i think that's a reminder how important it is that when you think somebody might be call to the priesthood to say something because it is right. important that it's reiterated several times because it may not sink in right away. Yeah, normally they run away or, you know, run, yeah, maybe, right. but they're going to say no, their eyes are going to get big, they're going to start backing away, you know, that, that that's pretty typical response, but most of the priests I talk with, that was their first response too. You know, they, the, the t that's very typical for them to say no and have a negative response at first. We've got to let it sink in, let, it get, let some time pass from the first time you ask to the second. And I always say, leave them with, I'm praying for you, and God has a big plan for you. So, let's, so ask them to pray. Ask God, what is your plan for my life? And start planting those seeds. If someone's listening and they're interested in beginning a vocation ministry like this at their home parish, what steps would you recommend they follow in order to get this started? So I would grab a copy of Hundredfold at vocationministry.com in the shop. 
um, and I'll send it to them. They read the first 50 pages, just 50 pages, and it's uh, some of what I've said right now is the why and the how. It's just more in-depth. And if they still feel called to do this, they should um, ask to speak with their pastor about it and ask if they can start one there. Um, explain to the pastor, first of all, that it doesn't cost anything for a good long while while you're getting the groundwork going and that they are not in charge of it. They don't have to be in charge of it. That the lay people will run it uh, because that's the, the biggest barriers. Priests think, I don't have enough time to run this thing, which they don't, and they shouldn't. So that's the, the next. And go to vocationministry.com and look around um, and look at all the um, activities uh, that I have for them there, too, will help them. Uh, we've got a little over a minute left to wrap up. Uh, I want to thank you very much for being on the program because I think this is something that we need to talk about in the church because we do need priests, and we're not going to get them if we don't talk about them. Yep, they don't grow on trees. No. They come out of families like those who are listening uh, to this program right now. <laughs> so we and we we really I hope that the message has gotten across that this is a need and that we cannot take for granted that our priests will just be there on Sunday and that we really need to get busy in our parishes. And if it's the least the least thing you could do, which is probably the most powerful, is start praying today for more men and women to generously say yes to the priesthood and religious life. Thank you, Rhonda Gruenwald, and we'll see you all next time on the Red Sea Roundup. Until then, when calculating the many ways you might share your time, talents, and treasure with the people of God, always round up. Rumors and talk.